we are a people of hope. Although we believe that in Jesus, the new creation has been initiated, God's kingdom will not come in its fullness until Christ comes again in glory. The dead are resurrected, evil is judged, and all things are made new. In the meantime, though sin and evil can often create times of great darkness, causing us to lament, we refuse to give in to despair or conspiratorial fear, not just because we reject pessimism, but because we are prisoners of hope. Likewise, we persevere in doing good and in living lives of love, not because we are optimistic about the future, but because we are prisoners of hope. I invite you this morning to take that little notebook. The, the text that Heather just read for us is on page five as we think about this third core value about new creation people being a people of hope. But this morning, I would love for us to look at a couple of texts, one from the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah in chapter 9, and the other, an epistle text in Romans, the fifth chapter. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. As we begin with Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He's humble, riding on an ass, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His rule will stretch from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Moreover, by the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless pit. So return to the stronghold. O prisoners of hope. Moreover, declare today that I will return double to you. And then Romans, the fifth chapter, just the first five verses. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness, combined with our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him, and we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were with us last week or able to watch uh, sometime during the week or were with us online last week, I talked a bit about a scripture-shaped imagination. And this morning as we think about hope, I, I want to think about a text for just a little bit um, that has really surprised me, honestly, in the ways that it has become such an important source of a scripture-shaped imagination for me. I, I would not have expected it, for it's not a very big book. It's only four chapters long, and it comes from kind of a strange part of the scripture. It comes from the minor prophets. But as some of you have picked up, because I mentioned it enough, but the book of Jonah has become a really important imaginative lens for me. And for a number of reasons. A, a few years ago, I came across uh, some scholars who were arguing, and I agree with them, that the book of Jonah 
is not just there to tell us the story of a prophet from the north who appears in a couple of verses in Kings, but that it is actually a story that comes from Jerusalem and from the people of Judah as a way to tell Jonah's story, but also as a way to retell their own story. So that in the same way that Jonah had a call upon his life, Judah had a call upon their life. In the same way Jonah ran from that call, Judah ran from that call. In the same way Jonah got swallowed into a fish, Judah got swallowed into exile. In the same way Jonah got barfed back up into life, Judah got thrown up back into the rubble of Jerusalem. In the same way that call remains on Jonah's life, that call remains on Judah's life. Are you with me? And so it becomes a way for them to kind of read and understand their life. And so this morning, as I think about hope, I think about three or four really important aspects of the story of Jonah. And the first is this, that Jonah has a kind of call upon his life that he can't really get out of, that, that he is a character in a story that he is not necessarily writing, he's contributing to, but he's kind of stuck in it and he can't really get out of it. Now, I know that we're Wesleyan types and we believe deeply in free will, and I do believe this. God will not coerce you into following him. You have to respond to his prevenient grace. However, in an age where so many of us are shaved by a kind of radical individualism and other forms of modern day life in ways that we are shaped to think that we're kind of writing our own story. It's refreshing to read a story like Jonah that starts this way, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And what defines his life is actually that he is captured in this vocation. He is captured by this life that has caught him and will not let him go. It is a vocation, and so in so many ways, the Judeans or the Israelites are stuck. I mean, it's as though Abraham got them into this story and that covenant they just can't seem to kind of get out of. It, it has captured everything about them. The second thing that's really helpful to me and has shaped me in the story of Jonah is that I love in the story of Jonah, the fish does not get the last word, right? Some of you are familiar with my not the last words. I'm not going to add the fish to that uh, litany of sayings. But I do love that Jonah, who gets swallowed up by the fish, running in his own disobedience, swallowed up, if you will, into a kind of exile. And what's fascinating in the story is he doesn't just get swallowed by the fish, but the fish then swims to the deepest part of the ocean, down to the part of the sea in the imagination of the text, goes down to the parts of the sea that are underneath the mountains. So it's not even like the water that we can see. I mean, he is as down into the abyss as he can go. But even there in the place of death where Jonah's story should be over, God hears the cries of Jonah and brings him out and delivers him from this bondage in the fish, if you will. And this is important. I, 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 one of the ways I would love to mess with you as you read the Old Testament is I really do think the Old Testament is primarily three exile stories. It's the story of Judah being swallowed up into Babylon, and they can't believe that they didn't die there, but somehow God puked them up into the rubble of Jerusalem, freed them from that bondage. But as the people of Judah think about that, they look back and realize, oh wait, we shouldn't be surprised that God delivers us, because when our whole people were held captive as slaves in Egypt, God heard our cries and brought us out of bondage in Egypt. But this is really important. As they look all the way back, they realize, oh, wait a minute. Our whole understanding of creation is that Adam and Eve were in the land in harmony with God. But their sin and brokenness sent them out of the land. 
And now it's not just us as Judah or us as Israel, but it is the whole creation separated from the purposes and plans of God. And God will not quit until he gets Judah out of Babylon, Israel out of Egypt, and the whole creation out of the broken mess we find ourselves in. Thanks be to God. The third part of the story that fascinates me and captures my imagination is actually how it ends. You may remember Jonah's not real happy that Nineveh has converted. He's kind of having an angry fit. And the story really ends with a question. God says to Jonah, Jonah, should I not have compassion and mercy on Nineveh? This in Hebrew, the word gadol means great. This gadol, this great city and all of its animals, all the creatures, should I not have compassion? And what I love is this, it doesn't get answered. It just hangs there as a question that hangs in Jonah's life because it then also hangs in our life. That we are people caught in this story and God keeps bringing us back into his purposes. And I know it doesn't matter how far down we get into the belly of Sheol, he keeps hearing our cry and bringing us back. But when we're brought back, we're brought back with this question that draws us into God's purposes. Should we not care about this broken world and its people and, and the broken creation that we find ourselves in? Are you with me? And so the, those three things just so shape my imagination, but the big part of it is this. I just hate how the story ends. I hate that Jonah ends with a posture of anger, of bitterness, of graciouslessness. That Jonah, rather than having a posture that moves him towards the new creation things that God is doing actually gives him a posture that moves him away from those purposes. And so part of what I I so desperately want to do with Jonah is I I just want to rewrite the ending. But this morning as we think about hope, I want to think about how I have a deep concern that we too find ourselves more often than we want to confess in the posture of Jonah. So this morning I want to talk about hope. I also want to talk about posture. And I hate that word because my mother has tried to get me to have the right posture my entire life. And now I'm just 55 and my shoulders do this because I didn't work on it enough. I have the wrong posture. I wish I had a better posture. But, but I want to think with us this morning about our posture and about what it means to have a posture of hope in the world. So for, for a few minutes, I, I want to talk about where, what I think has really shaped us. And, and I, I don't know how to do this other than just to do it and to say it. And, and this is kind of a risky day because I'm going to say things I've hinted at, but I'm just going to say them today. And I want to say, as I talk about these things, I don't doubt the motivations of the people who shaped us this way. I think they were trying to do the right thing. So I don't want to question the heart of anybody who has shaped us this way. But at the same time, I'll get pretty passionate about this because I feel it deep within me that many of us, especially in 20th century and 21st century American Christianity in particular, have been shaped in certain ways theologically that have helped us have the wrong posture towards hope. 
And so this morning, I want to talk about kind of where the story ends. Although I get, yep, that's the right direction for you. If the story has a beginning there, it has an end out there. Now, in theology, we actually has a fancy word. It's called eschatology. You don't necessarily need to know that. But it's actually a really important aspect of theology. Because where we think this story is going is really important to how we're living it right now. Are you with me? And so what we think happens out there, where this story is ending, and I would say the scripture doesn't give us really clear details about where that's going, but it has really powerful imaginative language that, that shapes our hopes of where the story is going. But for many of us, as especially 20th and 21st century Christians, we were shaped by a eschatology, and this is the part that's kind of hard to convince people of, that's actually really quite new. Um, there was a, a kind of eschatology that developed in the 18th, 1800s called dispensationalism. And it, at first, people thought it was n- not very thoughtful because it was so different than the way historically for 1800 years the church had thought about that end. But then as we got into the 20th century, several things began to happen. We had a couple of really devastating world wars in which the evilness of humankind was deeply exposed. We had the rise of communism, which creates all sorts of fears and conspiracies and challenges in that Cold War period. We had the rise of nuclear weaponry, which rightfully makes us nervous about our ability to destroy everything. And certainly the rise of technology and other kinds of things begin to have people kind of rethink this theology that is emerging in the 1800s. And by the time we get to, especially the time period I'm coming through the church in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, in a lot of aspects of Christianity, it really began to take hold, especially in our popular imaginations became part of our books and became part of our films and became part of our songs. But this morning, I, I want to say to you, I, again, don't doubt the motives of those who are going that way. But what we end up with is a kind of theology that shapes us out of a kind of fear that then postures us towards the world in ways that are unhealthy. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm meaning. So there's a a text in Matthew, the 24th chapter, also shows up in Luke, the 17th chapter. Some of you may not remember this. There's a guy named Larry Norman who wrote a song based on Matthew, this one little text in Matthew 24. And by the way, let me say it. Larry Norman was cool when I was a teenager. He was the first sort of rock and roller for Jesus. And the rock that doesn't roll is still one of my favorite songs. He's good for the body and great for the soul. He's the rock that doesn't roll. I still think it should be added to the hymnal, but I'm working on it. But but Larry Norman also wrote a song based on Matthew 24 that said this, I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears, the other's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. I can quote the song because I can play it over and over in my imagination. Problem is, it's a really bad reading of Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus is trying to prepare us and prepare disciples for the fact that he is coming again, but there will be a delay. And so he says, at the return of the Son of Man, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. People will party, 
not be paying attention. But then, in fact, even the verse says, but in the same way the floodwaters came and washed people away. There will be two men working, one will be taken, the other will remain. Two women working, one will be taken, the other will remain. Because I knew Larry Norman's song so well, I just assumed what that text meant is someday Jesus is going to come and take we faithful folks out of here and leave the wicked behind for some kind of scary moment in history. Problem is, the text actually says, no, here's how things happened in the days of Noah. The floodwaters came when judgment came, the wicked were taken away and the righteous remained. It's actually a, a fairly poor reading of that text. Another example is 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's a, this interesting text where Paul recognizes that the early Christians are getting worried. They're expecting the return of Christ, but they're getting worried because some of their family members are dying. And so they ask Paul a legitimate question. What happens to the dead? What happens to our loved ones when they die? And Paul says, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Because they are with the Lord. And someday when the Lord returns, the dead will come with them and the, their bodies will be resurrected. And then Paul says this, and we who are alive, we will meet him in the air. And that's the end of it, right? Now, I don't want to ruin, because this is, again, one of my favorite gospel songs. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away in the morning. But we kind of wrote that song based on what is, I think, kind of a bad reading of that text. That first of all, Paul's not really trying to tell us what will happen to us or where we'll go. He's really trying to assure us that the dead will come back. They are not gone. They are with the Lord. But many ancient biblical scholars and some recent ones have reminded us that what Paul is likely imagining in the text is like in the first century when an emperor, a general goes off and fights a battle and wins, they come back to town and what do all the people do? Like greeting your favorite Super Bowl champion, you run to the gates and you have a parade and you usher that conquering general or that conquering emperor back into town with all sorts of shouts and all sorts of celebrations. And what does that person bring? That person brings all of the people that went with them and all the people that they have conquered, if you will, and they bring them in procession back into the city. And it is more likely that the imagination is, Paul says, if we are alive when the Lord returns, here come the dead, and they get reconnected to their bodies, and we greet him and usher him back to be king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Are you with me? So I'll fly away definitely needs a new verse added to it. I'll fly away and then return in celebration, right? <laughs> and we began to take prophetic literature, in particular the book of Revelation. And because there were so many kind of conspiracies and things going around us, we began to read that text as though it's some kind of prediction of future events. When it's really a kind of revelation of how to remain faithful in the time of empire. Since I'm out here, I got my resume together. Um, that's a joke, by the way. Since I'm out here, I, I grew up, maybe many of like you, just terrified about the mark of the beast. 
kind of nervous about barcodes on the back of cereal boxes. Kind of looking at them suspiciously thinking, I'm going to put one of those on my head someday, right? The problem with reading the text that way is that it actually misses out on the fullness of what the revelator is trying to talk about there. I've hinted this to you before. Everybody who writes about the mark of the beast always fails to overlook the fact that there's actually a mark of the lamb in Revelation. None of us are ever worried about lamb tattoos. And now what the revelator is doing, is going back to Deuteronomy 6.4, where the Torah says, keep these words I'm commanding you today. Write them on your head and on your hand, on your doorpost, on your gate. I mean, keep them everywhere. Because the things that are most important to you will be the things that mark your life and radiate from your life. And so the text, I would argue, is really saying, as we live within this empire that is trying to draw us, we'll get back to this in a couple of weeks, draw us into worship of all these things around us. It is trying to mark us with its life. My concern is three generations of people waiting around to not get a barcode on their head have actually been marked by the beast because they become reflections of the world around them and not a reflection of the lamb. Thanks, mom. Are you with me? Now, I can't fix all that. Come Wednesday night, if you're confused, we'll, we'll sort it out. But that was a really bad move. Because the big thing that it did, as I have said before, is it cuts off the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the Bible. For if you cut off the first two chapters of the Bible, you start with the fall. And if you cut off the last two chapters of the Bible, you end with the lake of fire. But if you keep those four chapters on, chapters one and two is God affirming the beauty and goodness of creation, and chapters 20 and 21 of Revelation is the renewal of the whole creation, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and making all things new and a healing of all the nations. Are you with me? Now here's why this is a, pro- a problem. Because that kind of theology that, is ra- that we have been raised on and shaped by many of us, not all of us thankfully, but many of us, What that has done is it's taken our hopes and it's shrunk them, minimized them, cheapened them. And what it has caused us to do then is have a certain kind of posture towards the world. And quickly, here's the kind of posture it's it's caused us to have. It's given us posture that has disconnected us from the createdness of us and of the world. And we didn't need any help. Capitalism already has helped us get disconnected from the land. I love Costco, let me say that. But Costco is the Disneyland of processed food. I go to Costco, I never have to think, where did these chicken breasts come from? How did these come to be? Where did this stuff come from? I love the village. And I like having new clothes. But our economy is shaped in such a way, I never have to ask the question, where did these fabrics come from? How were these clothes made? Right? I'm disconnected from all of that. I didn't need help being disconnected. But here's the problem. That kind of hope shaping has disconnected us from creation. And it has disconnected us in particular from the call that God placed upon us in the very first chapter of the scripture to be good dominioners, caretakers, gardeners for the creation. Now I know some of you are going, oh my word, our pastors lost it. But here's the thing. 
Some folks who have worldviews we do not agree with have had to take this from us because we, the people who should have led the way in creation care, have acted like we live on a rental. And I like rentals. I've told you this, we, when I taught at SNU, we lived in a house that we rented from the university. Caleb and Noah were really little. And we knew not only were we renting it, but we knew they were going to tear it down when we moved out and build sand volleyball courts. Best place to raise kids, right? Like Caleb and, Caleb and Noah had these big wheels, and I remember they just raced them down the hallway and bang against the walls, mark everything up. And Debbie one day was like, oh no. And I was like, don't worry, they're tearing it down. Have at it, right? It was delightful. Here's the problem. We have a posture towards the world that says, this is, this is just God's rental. Rather than a passionate heart for what does it mean for us to be connected to the createdness, to live as caretakers and dominioners over creation. Secondly, it's made us vulnerable to and often purveyors, and often purveyors of conspiratorial thinking. I remember as a kid in youth group, we would bring records. Do you remember those? Now they're just kind of cool, but uh, remember records? We had them on purpose. I remember going to youth group as a teenager and playing them backwards, right? Do you remember that? We play them backwards to try to hear the voice of the devil. And all you had to do was play them frontwards. <laughs> it wasn't hiding, right? Like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like they were great stuff, you know, right? I went to a Christian school. I can't tell you how many prophecy seminars I sat through. I was thinking the other day, there have been at least four or five predictions of the Antichrist that have come and gone in my lifetime as an evangelical Christian. The good news is we're not done, which will mean somebody else can sell a lot of books next. Hyping us up. Now, it's shocking, isn't it, that people who are framed with that kind of conspiratorial way of approaching the world, then according to studies, the group of people sitting in this room are two or three times more likely to fall for false information pervade in social media in the world than, the, than our neighbors. What's tragic is the last two years, it's not only become silly, but deadly. How we think a people who are so addicted to conspiratorial ways of thinking. How we think a people who are shaped like that can stand up to the world and talk about a first century Jewish carpenter who rose from the dead as the savior of the world and have them not laugh at us is ridiculous. For if we're able to fall for that stuff, how can that be true? That's why the scripture invites us to say, when you hear this and hear that and hear that, don't believe that. Be of sound mind. Be of calm heart. Let not your heart be troubled. It's often made us complicit with the principalities and powers. A people who think the end of the story is just getting out of here. All we begin to care about is getting people's souls there with us, and we totally ignore the fact that they have been in bondage in all sorts of levels in life.
And so this hope, this being prisoners of hope, Zechariah invites us into this, this hope that Paul invites us into, this hope that Christ says this is the hope we have, is deep and rich and beautiful, and it, it forms in us a whole different kind of character and posture towards the world. And, and quickly, I just want to say, here are some ways that I think it does shape us positively. It shapes us to be a people who are able to lament. Now, now hear me, I like positive people. I married somebody with positivity in their top strengths. I like it. I like optimistic people. But being people shaped by hope does not mean that we're just always positive and optimistic. It may mean like we have been doing the last several months, we are lamenting. But we lament not in despair, but in a certain hope that this is not the way the world should be, and it's not the way God intends to remake the world. And therefore, we can cry out to God and say, God, remake the world the way we know you are remaking the world. And do it now, and do it in us. And it shapes us with a posture as a people who've who have learned, and I've got so much to say here, but my friend Andy Crouch, when writing about the culture, says Christians have kind of four C's that we live into. He says we, we often learn to condemn the culture. And, and please hear me, there are some things worth condemning. But if that's the only posture we have, then we get really isolated. We become so heavenly minded, we become no earthly good. And so when we get to college, we learn to critique the culture. So I remember going to classes where we watched a couple of movies that I wasn't allowed to watch growing up so that we could understand them, right? Interpret them. This is really helpful. But as Andy loves to say, understanding is good, but critiquing doesn't change anything. Sometimes the church, in a fight for relevance, has decided to copy the culture, which isn't always bad, but not always good. But to be people of hope gives us a posture that allows us to begin to create culture. There's this beautiful vision in Isaiah where all the kings of the earth bring their treasures before the Lord. A story that begins in a garden actually ends in a city in the scripture's imagination where every good thing that you have contributed, every God-honoring thing that you and I have made and blessed and sung and written and sculpted and every part that is added to the beauty of God's creation gets carried into God's eternity. Ah. And lastly, a people of hope are patient. That's what Paul, I think, is getting at in Romans 5. The people who are shaped by hope develop perseverance, patience. A character that doesn't get in a hurry. People who are in a hurry. It's a wonderful book by a guy named Alan Kreider called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Where he says the most important thing in the first 300 years of the church was, was their practice of patience. They trusted that God was redeeming all things and was working through them, but they didn't have to hurry up God through acts of coercion or violence or manipulation, they could live faithfully believing that the one who called them, he is faithful and he will do it and finish his work in us. And so this morning, I just want to affirm with you that, that it is difficult, it is hard, but we are a people shaped by hope. And we are prisoners of hope. 
And as a church, we should have a posture that, that is shaped by that hope. If I could just go back to Jonah one last time. Every time I read that text, as I said, I want to change the ending. For too often, God is at work in grace and redemptive power, renewing all things. And unfortunately, God's people too often take a posture in which we miss out on what God is doing in the world. May God help us to be a people so captured by hope that we find ourselves in a posture of gratitude and patience and love and we do not miss out on what God is doing in the world. For my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. God, come and expand our hopes today. I pray for some who are here and online or who will hear this message later who feel overwhelmed by the things of life. Damaged by sin, hurt by loss. Your call is not for us uh, to not feel that or grieve that. But it is to journey through that and have a character that is shaped by hope. And so I pray, God, that your hope, the hope of your new creation, the hope of your love, the hope of your grace, the hope of your mercy, the hope that the belly of the fish never gets the last word, that that hope would shape us in a posture that allows us to move forward, drawn by you, the way, the truth, and the life. I pray you'd have mercy on us um, in ways probably unintended, but ways nevertheless destructive. We have been, we've allowed our hopes to be shrunk, our hopes to be minimized, our hopes, frankly, to become somewhat unbiblical. And in that process, we have taken postures towards 
towards you, towards the world, towards ourselves, even towards each other, we've taken postures that have been detrimental to the mission that you've given to us. And so may our hope be built on nothing less today than you. And may the posture of our life towards our neighbor, towards one another, be in the response of love and hope. For we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing together. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your
So although we believe that in Jesus, the new creation has been initiated, God's kingdom will not come in its fullness until Christ comes again in glory. The dead are resurrected, evil is judged, and all things are made new. In the meantime, though sin and evil can often create times of great darkness causing us to lament, we refuse to give in to despair or conspiratorial fear, not just because we reject pessimism, but because we are prisoners of hope. And likewise, we persevere in prayer, in doing good, and in living lives of love, not because we are optimistic about the future or in our abilities to make the world a better place, but because we are prisoners of hope. And may the God of peace himself, may he sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, your soul, your body may be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful. And he will not stop until he finishes this work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.